You're listening to Sports Connections with David Smale, the show that brings you a fun and intimate look into connections throughout sports. Now here's your host, David Smale. Brian McRae is a former 10-year veteran of Major League Baseball. He's also the son of former 19-year veteran, Hal McRae, who managed him for four seasons with the Kansas City Royals. They are one of just four combinations in MLB history where a son was managed by his father. Brian had opportunities to play college football as well as baseball, but when the Royals selected him 17th overall in the first round in 1985, he chose to follow his father's footsteps. In a very respectable 162-game averages with 12 home runs, 64 RBIs, 23 stolen bases, and a career OPS of 726. Here's how good he was. He replaced legendary Bo Jackson in center field for the Royals when Jackson went on the disabled list in 1990. And when Jackson came off the DL, the Royals kept McCray in center and moved Jackson to left field. So, BMAC, welcome to Sports Connections. Thank you. Thank you very much. Now, I got to start with football. Um, you had the chance to play college football at your choice of schools or sign with the Royals. Now, I always thought it was unfair that God would give one person enough talent to play at a high level in two different sports. Those of us who couldn't play any would like to have had, you know, the leftovers. But how and why did you choose to pursue baseball? Well, first off, it was probably the safer sport to play. And in high school, I had trouble rebounding after Friday night game. I was sore until Tuesday. And that was just high school, high school football. And I just felt that if I had an opportunity to play professional baseball, that I'd probably go further in professional baseball than in, in football. And I would probably be a decent college player. And after four years or five years of college football, I'd be done and looking to start somewhere to do, do something else. After four or five years of minor league baseball, I figured that I'd be close to the big leagues or at least have a good understanding of where I fit. And at that age of 21, 22, I could have gone back to college and played a couple of years of college football if I wanted to. And my body would have probably been a little bit more mature and ready for the rigors of playing college football than it would have been as a 17-year-old. So it was an easy choice for you. It wasn't an easy choice because the appeal of playing college football is is pretty strong at, at the D1 level and playing in the Big 12 at the time uh, at University of Kansas or going over Mizzou was the other choice. You know, those were very, very appealing offers. And it was something that it, it took being drafted in the first round to, to pull me away from from going to college because I figured that. If I'm drafted in the first round, I'll get an opportunity to play in the big leagues. And there was no guarantee if I get drafted later later in the rounds. Right. So I figured that I got drafted high enough that it was worth taking a shot. Were, were you surprised that you got drafted in the first round? Because I remember following that draft and hearing about you and thinking, okay, he's going to play college football. I wonder who the Royals are going to take. And when I heard your name, I thought that's – I was surprised that, that the Royals drafted me, for one because they didn't see a whole lot of games that I played in high school. The Yankees and the Angels scouted me a lot more than the Royals did. I, I figured I'd be in the fifth, the seventh round. That's kind of what I was hearing from, uh, from people. But who knows what changed and uh, 
you know, what, what was happening in the draft. Because in, in those years, there wasn't all these draft experts out there. There weren't these publications. They weren't things that were saying a whole lot. So you didn't know a lot outside of your region of who was projectable and who wasn't and what, what was going on. It's a, it's a lot different than, uh, than it is today. And I was playing in a Legion, I think, a Legion baseball tournament when I, when I was drafted. So it wasn't even any big fanfare or anything like that. I, I, got to, I wasn't even home when the call came. Do you ever look back and say what would have been different had you chosen football or are you happy with the decision? No, I'm happy. You know, playing minor league baseball wasn't a lot of fun playing in front of nobody where I could have been playing in stadiums across the country playing, you know, 50 to 80,000 people. But I look at it that I wasn't ready physically to compete. I didn't think at the at the collegiate level as a 17 year old. And I had a better chance of success starting off my baseball career at the time when I started it off and not four or five years later. And my body would have been beat up from playing college football. Yeah. Now, I'm, I have to tell you, I'm a K-Stater, so I'm really glad you chose baseball over playing football at KU. Um, and, and you said playing in front of nobody – uh, back then, playing at KU, uh, you were playing in front of – they would have been playing in front of fans because they were drawing – well, that was Glenn Mason era, if I remember correctly. No, that was uh, Mike Godfrey. Mike God. okay, so before Glenn Mason. But they were drawing they, – they drew they, – they had beaten Oklahoma. Yeah. I think in 80 – like 83 or 84. Yeah. It might have been a game when Troy Aikman was playing before he went – transferred to UCLA. Yeah, and I think you're right. beat Oklahoma in Lawrence. So they had some good wins. They were, they were, they had some NFL type players there. Um, I know uh, Rodney Pete's brother, Skip Pete, was a receiver there when I was on my recruiting uh, visit. And Willie Pless, the linebacker that I think he played in the CFL. Okay. And, and uh, was was a good player there in the CFL. So they had some good talent and some good players there. And it was right before they had a decent run in the early nineties or so where they went to some bowl games. And so it, it was, it was tempting, but as I said before, I was 17 when I graduated, I had a late birthday and I started school earlier. So I was, I was young for my age and I just didn't think my body was ready for the rigors of playing division one football because of what I felt from the three years of varsity football that I played you know, I was, like I said, I, I woke up on Saturday mornings and couldn't get out of bed. And that was just from high school players hitting me. So what was going to happen in, in, in college? Now, you talked about your, your age compared to the other people in your grade. Do you think that's why it may have taken you a little longer to get to the major leagues? I think that and switching positions. Uh, most high school players are five years, four to, four to five years. So I don't think that took me a lot longer because of anything other than just the progression of being a switch hitter and being learning how to switch it and learning everything at the major league or at the minor league level and getting prepared for pro ball. And then I started that short, moved to second, then the left field, then the center field. So I had multiple position changes 
and those take time also. Sure. Um, now, when you finally got your um, got your first full season with the Royals, you got to play for your dad, and we talked about that earlier. You're one of four major league ball players to play for their dad as manager. First of all, what was that like? It was a little odd because growing up, we were always coming and going. You know, we didn't. I didn't see him a lot during the season because of his commitment and his what he had to do to. Uh, you know, with the Royals from February to October and more times than likely later in October because they were in the playoffs. And then with me and school and the hours just don't work for a baseball family to to see their dad that much when you're growing up because I didn't go to a lot of games during school because games run late and school in the morning. Yeah. Dad gets home late from, from games we're already asleep for the most part. You wake up in the morning, go to school. Your dad's asleep still because he's late and it has a date, it has a night game. So it was the first time that the family was together and got to do normal type family activities during a baseball season where we traveled together and, and, and all that. So initially it was just odd because the family hasn't been, hadn't been together um, during a baseball season, during a you know a regular eight months of a of the baseball season from spring training to the end of the year, and once the newness wore off, and probably by '93, it probably took a year and a half or so. '93 and '94 felt real comfortable. '90 when he came over in '91, I think it was because Watson was yeah. So when he came over in '91, it was odd. And the whole 92 season was just odd. We had – it was uh, – you know, we got off to a great, uh, terrible start and, you know, it wasn't great results for anyone there. But 93 and 94 felt normal and people kind of left us alone and didn't make such a big deal about a father-son um, manager-player deal. And I think that helped me because I didn't like all the questions about that. You can only answer them a certain way. And people yeah. ask the same question all the time. And I wanted the focus to be on what we were doing on the field, winning or losing ball games, and how we were performing, and not about the father-son relationship and how that how that affected things. It's interesting. I hadn't thought about that particular angle of it of, of maybe to a certain extent getting to know him a little bit, knowing what kind of a manager he would be, knowing what kind of a uh, well, for him knowing what kind of a player you would be. Take it for granted that you get to see your father, if your, if your mother and father are, are married, and you get to see them every day. They take that for granted where mm -hmm. this is like a military family. You don't see your father every, every day. Yeah. And he's gone for stretches at a time. It's not long like a deployment, but there were times where the family would go a few months maybe without seeing a whole lot of one of the, the main figures in the household. And a lot of, a lot of people, you know, you take that for granted where you come home and you see your both parents every day and that just doesn't, doesn't happen. And, and after 23 years or 24 years, I finally got to see my dad on almost an everyday basis. So that, that was kind of. We've all seen instances, you know, maybe it's little league or even, uh, high school or something like that, where the father slash manager is tougher on his own kid than he is on the other players. 
Did you ever sense that, that your dad was holding you to a different standard? Or once you get to the, the majors, he's holding everybody to a high standard? I think once you get to the big leagues, it's, it's different because it's performance-based and you're trying to win ball games and there's money and titles and things like that at stake. So I, I didn't think that was any issue. And plus, I was there. I felt good about my standing on the team because I was there before my dad got there. Right. Yeah, even though he had a history with the team. A year of big league time before my father came along. Yeah. So I felt good about that. That that made the transition a little bit smoother because I was already there. And he had a history with the team, but he had been away for a while as well. Right. He was he was coaching somewhere. His last year, and then he went on to Montreal. So he was he was away for a while while I was in the minor leagues. And then I got called up. So I, like I said, I, I felt a lot better because I had already been there before he came. And then I'd already, not long, but I'd, I'd been there long enough where I was called up without my dad being in the talks of anything that was going on regarding my progress and me getting to the big one. Yeah, you, you weren't called up because your dad was the manager. So that, that certainly probably helped that situation. Uh, now, your dad got fired during the strike. I mean, 1994 had to be about the worst year of your life. You, you guys are in first place. The strike hits. You, you know, you don't get to finish that season. And your dad gets your dad gets fired. I, I still think that's one of the worst decisions in Royals history. Did you, And I know you got traded after that season, so it wasn't totally up to you. But did you lose your desire to play for the Royals when that happened? No, I just saw the direction that the organization was going in and I was starting, you know, 93 and 94, I was just starting to get into where I felt like I was developing to not just a, a big leaguer, but I was, I was getting good. I was doing some things. And, you know, I had a five or six year run there from 93 to 98 where I was better than an average player. So that, that was in the middle of that. And I wanted to win some ball games and, you know, I got a taste of it in 93 and 94, and I saw where the organization was going, and it didn't look like they were anywhere close to what they were trying to do to win because of the ownership situation with the death of Mr. K and all that. And, you know, I loved, I would have loved to play my whole career here, but I also wanted to experience some winning and do that in the prime years of my career, at least have a chance to, to, to win some ball games and and experience that. Now you never got to play in the minor or in the postseason. You you came really close a couple of times. Um, did, did you have any regrets about your career? Uh, not making the playoffs was one because I think I have one of the longest streaks of not you know you know ten years in the big leagues and fourteen hundred or whatever games I played and and no postseason experience and I was close. To, a few years and got traded from the Mets to the Blue Jays in 99 and the Mets go to the, go to the, um, go to the playoffs. And then, uh, you know, I miss playoffs with the Blue Jays by a couple games. So, you know, 95, 96, 97, 98 and 99, I had chances to go to the playoffs and maybe 94 with, the, with the strike. So, I was close and I was on the last day of the season in 98 and 95. So, you know, I, I felt like 
you know, that we played some playoff type atmosphere games, but I mm-hmm. never got to play that extra extra season. And you know, that that's something that I, you know, think about. But you know, there's a lot of other factors that go into it also that uh, with with being a team sport and you know, it wasn't all my doing with us not being able to get to the get to the postseason. Sure. It's not quite an Ernie Banks level streak who played what, 22, 23 years with the Cubs uh, and, and never made the postseason. Of course, back when Ernie was playing, there were two teams that made the postseason. Um, but certainly I, I'm guessing that was um, that was one regret. You were successful, though, in not only here uh, in Kansas City, but in other cities. What were the highlights of your career? I enjoyed playing in Chicago, playing the day games, playing at Wrigley, uh, putting on a Cub uniform. That, that was cool. I had only been to Wrigley once uh, in the five years I was in the American League. I went over for a day game before we played the White Sox. So I, I knew not much about the National League other than that I thought the cities were better than, than the American League. And I enjoyed my time in the, in the National League and enjoyed playing in cities like Chicago and, and New York and, uh, and then finishing up for the last little bit of my career in Toronto. I got to play in some of the best cities in North America. Okay. What, what else besides the cities? Do you have any, any games that stick out? Not really. Not ga- game wise. No, just the, the friendships, the people that you meet. Uh, I really enjoyed day games because I got a chance to live a normal life. You know, I was more of nine to five and mm-hmm. could do what normal people do after work. You can hang out for a little bit and, go to shows and eat a nice dinner at a decent hour and still be home by eight thirty nine 9 o'clock to go to work the next day. So I, I enjoyed that. That was the most, the thing that I most enjoyed about playing in Chicago is just having normal, normal hours mm-hmm. and not um, trying to find something to eat at midnight, one o'clock in the morning all, all the time. Yeah. Now you got into broadcasting, even while your career was going on in Chicago, what was it about broadcasting that intrigued you? It was just something that I thought I could do and I wanted to do since I was a little kid. I thought that if I didn't play sports, I could be around it and uh, and talk about it. And I felt that I had a good knowledge of how to how to do it. And I took broadcasting classes and you know, did high school football, high school basketball, high school baseball, small college football and basketball. So I I, I prepped for it and you know, that was something that I enjoyed doing for the 16 years or so that that, that I did uh, broadcasting and, and doing it at all levels, uh, minor league baseball, big league baseball, college. You know, that that, that was fun. And, uh, you know, I really enjoyed that. And I, I was upset that our network, the American Sports Network, uh, got the, uh, disbanded because I was about to – embark on doing 20 to 30 minor league games a year and doing college baseball tournaments. Uh, you know, so that was fun uh, um, getting to do that. So the last um, kind of thing I did broadcasting is when I was at Mizzou in 2017, I did the SEC network games. So all that stuff that I did prior to me retiring prepared me to do a lot of uh, a lot of uh, fun broadcasting events and travel all over the country and in the world. I got to go to Japan two or three times to, to do games there. So that, that was something that 
I did early in my career because I thought that that was something that, that I, I enjoyed doing and I liked and that I could still stick around the game even when I wasn't playing. Were you one of those guys when you're playing pickup games that would announce what was going on? <laughs> As a kid, I would do that, yeah. Um, now, um, you've been involved in Big Brothers, Big Sisters, and the Cystic Fibrosis, sick, let me try that again, Cystic Fibrosis Foundation. Talk about your charitable work. I got involved with Cystic Fibrosis and Big, uh, Big Brothers, Big Sisters right around the same time. Um, Big Brothers and Big Sisters, I think they approached me my first or second year here about getting getting on board. And I really like the idea of that organization because I could have the kids come out to the stadium. They could come to my office. And that was something that uh, that was kind of cool. And then we did a little Chicago, Kansas City thing where we brought some kids to Chicago, brought kids to Kansas City. So that worked with my schedule, being able to have the meet and greets at the ballpark and, and do things like that. And that, that worked with what the organization was doing, getting the bigs to, uh, to do things with their, with their littles. So that was that combination and that, that worked well. And then I was on the board with big brothers and big sisters for a while. Sisters of fibrosis. I had some uh, close personal friends that that disease had affected. So that was something that I, uh, I did some charitable, charitable uh, endeavors for, for that foundation just because I, I saw firsthand how devastating that was. Why, why do you feel that people in, with a platform, like being a major league ball player, why do you think it's important for somebody in that position to use that platform to, to do good for other people? I just think it's important for anybody that has an opportunity to do something, not only athletes, just the kids at Big Brothers and Big Sisters didn't care that I was a baseball player. They just cared that, I, I cared about them. And that's that's the main thing is just no matter what you do or what your status is or how you feel, you know, you can affect some. You don't know the positive impact you have on people if you just show them that you care and that you want to see them successful and you want to see them do well. Yeah, and they're the old saying, they don't care about how much you know until they know how much you care. I think that's true for anybody my point was that you, you've got that platform. And in some cases, that is going to make a difference because you might be able to inspire somebody who doesn't have that platform to do the same type of thing. Yeah, you could do that. But also, I saw some people that, you know, work behind the scenes with these organizations that impact a lot more people just because of their personality and their drive and their passion for what they're doing. And that goes a long way. Also, that's infectious. That that goes a long way too, because sometimes you have some athletes that'll do some charitable things, and people shy away from them just because they think the guy's just doing it just to make himself look good. But you have other people are so called they're not nobodies, but they're so called you know they're not a big name person that they do it doing the work and they're spreading the word, and sometimes that catches on a little bit more because you know you have to have the right type of people. But I think that's the kind of people that they had at Big Brothers and Big Sisters where it was just infectious and people would latch on. Yeah. Now, there was one other thing as I was doing research for this, Brian, there was one other thing that I noticed. It was a charity event called 50 and 50 where you were going to play golf 
on 50 Friends of mine courses. from high school played 50. What, what's played that? 50 courses in 50 states in like 52 days. And uh, I forget what charity that was, but they did that for three or four years. And so I, I met them a couple places. Uh, um, that was a friend of mine I've known since grade school and a buddy that I met um, about uh, 20 years ago or so, uh, golf pros. And they did that a couple of times for charity. So I helped, helped out along the way with them. How many courses, how many states did you play? I didn't play at all. I just would meet them. So I oh, met okay. them like in six or seven. But they, they did all the – they played, and then I just helped, helped out and got publicity for them with the radio station, with the Sports Radio 810 and, and things of that nature. Okay, because that's – I'll tell you, that's one of, one of the things pretty high on my bucket list is to play golf in Alaska. I've got friends who, who live up there um, just north of Anchorage, and they say the sun does set, but barely. And I want to yeah, play golf. Yeah, I want to play golf overnight. Um, and that's on my bucket list. So I was thinking, if you had the opportunity to play golf in Alaska in the summertime, you should have done that, man. But no, they they uh, they did it two or three years and raised a lot of money and uh, beat them up. You know, they were they they took probably two to three weeks off and did nothing after, after that. But, uh, that yeah. was, uh, that was, I don't know who came up with it, but, uh, they had their little map and how they were going to do it. And they set out and they, and they got it done. That's pretty awesome. All right. I always let people wrap up with these two topics. First of all, talk about your family, your dad, obviously people watching this, if they've been around baseball or followed baseball for any length of time, know about your dad, but talk about your extended family. I have a younger brother, five years younger than me, that worked for the Marlins for 25 years. He was their um, director of video, video coordinator, and he has two World Series rings from the Marlins. He played a little college baseball at Florida A&M University, and he is uh, now back in Bradenton. The Marlins let him go when the Jeter and all that uh, new new regime came in. He, he lasted – a lot longer than most Marlins employees did. So he, he got 20, I think 23 to 24 years with the Marlins. Uh, so he's living back in Bradenton um, near my parents. And my sister is 10 years younger than me. She's a teacher. She has three kids. My brother has, has two. Um, my oldest uh, niece is an 18-year-old and uh, 19 now. She's a sophomore at University of Colorado. we going into her, her junior year. My sister's three kids are 14, 12, and 10. I have a 10-year-old daughter or 14-year-old daughter. And uh, as I said, my sister's a teacher. The whole mom, my mom's side of the family are teachers. So my mother's teacher, grandmother's teacher, aunt's teachers. So that that's where that that goes. And I think that's where the coaching aspect for me. I didn't want to be in a classroom. My classroom was a ballpark. Yeah. And uh, that's why I think after I did broadcasting, coaching um, kind of uh, was something that I was I was into and I liked doing. Now, you, you're, um, what's your role at Park? Are you the baseball coach at Park University? I was at Park University for four years, and then I moved on to Mizzou to get my uh, undergrad in 2018. Okay. At Shawnee Mission East and finished up my undergrad at Park there. So I, I had five years of collegiate coaching. I coached uh, the USA national team, the 18 and under team in 2010 that had Lindor and Bubba Starling, uh, guys like that on, on that team. 
and I managed a collegiate summer league team in Moorhead City, North Carolina in 2012. And then in 2017 and 18, I managed a collegiate summer team in the West Coast League, uh, Washington, Oregon, and uh, British Columbia. Uh, and I've had, I think there's three guys from that team. The 17 team, Andrew Vaughn with the White Sox is, uh, is in the big leagues right now. And a couple of guys are, are close. So uh, I really enjoyed coaching college ball. And the last couple of years, because of COVID, it's kind of knocked out what, uh, what I do in the summer. And I do some local lessons and uh, work with an organization called the Kansas City Sluggers, uh, Kansas City Sluggers Baseball. And that's high school age kids and um, travel around the Midwest and play ball in tournaments every weekend and try to get them scholarships. Kind of like what Mac and Sites is and, and yeah, those. Building champions, Mac, Mac and Sites. Uh, yeah. All those. So it's similar, just a smaller, a smaller organization. Yeah. Now it's, it's interesting. You said you have a 10 year old, no wait, 14 year old daughter. Those kids grow up fast. It seems like we brought my son home from the hospital three or four years ago. And now his wife's pregnant and he's 37. <laughs> the, the kids grow up fast. So uh, don't feel bad about missing by four years on how old your daughter is. Yeah, it's it's a, a big uh, you know big change with me being home the last couple summers has been good because I've been able to spend time with her so that's a blessing with all the craziness of the pandemic I'm traveling all over the place coaching and I'm able to spend a lot of quality time with her before she starts high school so it, it's been good. All right, last question. I get let everybody answer, even interpret the question the way they want, and then answer it the way they want. So the last question is, what is your legacy? Um, I think it is the, the kids that I've touched in big brothers and big sisters and the young men that I've touched coaching, I've coached now since 2008 at all levels that call me now that they're married, have kids moved on to doing other, other things. I think that's my legacy is just, you know, they, they know that I cared enough to where they still reach out. And we're still in touch, even though we're not coach and, and player. So I think that, that to me, that makes me feel good as they ask for advice. They, they still want, um, you know, want to talk to me, even though we're not playing ball anymore and we're not in the, you know, pushing the same way to try to get some wins. They know that I care about them as dads and husbands and brothers and, and, and things like that, that to where they still reach out to me. I hope they're still doing that 20 years from now. Yeah, and, and they still call you coach, don't they? They still call me coach, yes. I, I'm, I'm involved, excuse me, I'm involved in a coach's ministry, and we think that we talk about the fact that coaches share two things. One is a call to coach. If you're called to coach, you have to coach. And the other one is the same first name. It doesn't matter how many years ago you played for somebody, he still or she still uh, can be called coach. And that happens, and that makes me feel good when I get I get those calls or texts, and that makes me feel as good as seeing the seven or eight guys that I've coached going on and see them make their big league debut. It's the same thing when they show me their kid. Yeah. Well, BMAC, it's been a pleasure to have you and, and uh, wish you the best in, with the future, raising your daughter and, and uh, coaching and just having an impact in the community. Thank you very much, David. You take care. 
Thanks for listening to Sports Connections with David Smale. Make sure to subscribe, follow, and rate the show from your favorite podcast platform. You can learn more about David Smale and his work by visiting davidsmalebooks.com. Don't forget to join us weekly for new episodes. Until next time.